Like listening to podcasts just like this one from the team at Witch? Well, we've got some good news. All our podcasts are now available to listen to on YouTube and YouTube Music. So whether you like listening to Get Answers, Witch Shorts or Witch Money, all episodes can now be listened to directly on YouTube or through the YouTube Music app. To find them, just search for the podcast you'd like to listen to. YouTube's additional functionality also means that you can now read along with subtitles as you listen. Don't panic though, all which podcasts are still available to listen to elsewhere too. So wherever you listen, we'll see you soon. When life gives you questions, which get answers. Hello and welcome to the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm Rob Lilly-Jones, sitting in for Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. There were 1.9 million cars sold each year, and this is going back to potentially 2007. The figures involved could be quite significant. This week, we're covering a story you may have seen making the headlines over the last couple of weeks about car finance, with millions of UK drivers potentially in line for compensation. Many are even going as far as to say that the scandal could be as big as PPI, with the Financial Conduct Authority launching an investigation into car finance mis-selling. Today, we'll be hearing who could be affected and what to do if you think you might be one of those people, as well as discussing what might happen next. And to do so, I'm pleased to say that we are joined by a newcomer to the podcast, although I know he's a regular Witch Money podcast listener, which of course we love to hear. It's a warm welcome to the car journalist Richard Orcock. Richard, welcome. Hi there, Rob. Indeed, I'm a regular listener and it's great to, uh, to join you here. Oh, lovely to hear it. And it's brilliant to, to have you on. I mean, Richard, first place to, to start obviously has to be, can you really tell us a little bit more about this story for anyone not familiar with it? What do we need to know? Absolutely. Yeah, this um, this story did somewhat come out of the blue in early January when the FCA, which is the regulator, announced that it was looking into historical discretionary commission arrangements or DCAs. Um, it's it's looking back um, to before January 2021, which is when DCAs were banned. Um, and it's looking into whether people were overcharged on their APR car finance rates when a lower rate was available. To explain, a discretionary commission arrangement is where the broker, in this case a car dealer, had the discretion to choose from a set of predetermined rates which are set by the finance house or lender. And some of these higher APR rates um, paid high commission to the broker. But the key thing is car buyers were not aware that they were paying a higher APR than was otherwise available. As awareness of this has um, come out, um, the FCA says it's seen a higher number of complaints it's mentioned number of tens of thousands. And while the financial ombudsman service, um, which oversees complaints between consumers and lenders, while it's rejected most of these, recently the FOS did find in favour of two consumers and instructed the lender to pay commission. And as a result, the FCA expects a significant increase in the number of complaints, which is why it's now taking action with a review and an investigation. And this is set to continue between now and it's due to close in September 2024. And we should hear more details as it goes along with the completion due in September this year. As you say, it's an ever-changing picture, really, in the story that you mentioned that, that came out of the blue. Richard, do we know how long this goes back? Have, have the, the FCA mentioned how long sort of back in time they're, they're investigating? Well, this is a surprising thing. Um, the FCA uh, had a briefing session a few weeks ago and it mentioned it could look back right back to 2007. And this is when the um, FOS um, took over overseeing motor finance. So it's looking back many, many years. Um, in reality, it might look back six years um, which is when companies are required to 
hold records for consumers. But even so, because it's looking quite far back, it could involve a lot of people. And just to stress, this is for agreements, car finance agreements that were taken out before 2021, which is when this discretionary commission arrangements were outlawed. Well, I think one thing that's that's really important here before we go into the details is, I suppose, talk about the basics of car finance. Now, we know that data from Autotrader found that over two thirds of car purchases last year did involve finance. So how does finance work, Richard? Indeed, yeah, the, the Autotrader data is, is completely correct. Um, finance does fuel the majority of particularly private car purchases. I think there are statistics from the Finance and Leasing Association that more than nine in 10 private car buyers use car finance to buy their new car. This makes it the second most popular type of consumer finance after credit cards. And it means that there is a considerable expense involved here. Cars are very expensive purchases, the the second most expensive purchase after your house. And just, just as we take out mortgages for houses, so we take out car finance to help facilitate buying a new car. Now, one thing I didn't realise, to be honest, because I've, I've not actually done this, I've, I've not bought a car in finance, is, is just how many different options that there are available. It's not like there is car finance and, and that's it. There are, there are many, many different options available. So if we look at some of the pros and cons of each, Richard, do you mind starting with something that I know is, is called higher purchase? Yes, high purchase is perhaps the most traditional type of car finance. Um, It's been around for decades now, um, and it's very flexible. It means that after you've made the final payment, the car is yours to keep. Payments are spread over two or three or four years, depending on affordability, um, and you agree in advance what those monthly payments will be. And also because it means that you're keeping the car at the end of it, you can do what you want with it. You don't have to keep to a set mileage. You don't have to keep it in particularly great condition. Um, It's yours to do what you want. Uh, One of the disadvantages of HP, high purchase, is that monthly payments can be higher than some other types of finance. Uh, You also don't legally own the car until the end of the agreement. And if you do mess any payments, your car could be repossessed as the loan is secured against the car itself. And then if we move on to, to one of the other more popular options, you mentioned the HP higher purchase, that, that seems to be sort of the most traditional. But one of the other popular options I know is, is it PCP? So this is personal contract purchase. How does this work? That's right. Yeah, PCP um, is a newer form of car finance, but it's still around, been around since the 1990s. The real benefit here is that it gives you much more flexibility. With PCP, you're not financing the whole value of the car up front. You're simply financing the difference between the new price and an agreed future value in three or four years' time. And this helps keep the monthly payments lower. But of course, it means that after the end of the period, you do have a final payment to make, which you can either take out another finance agreement or do as many people do, in, and that's take out another PCP on a new car and use any collateral that you've had in the agreement to put towards the deposit for the, uh, for the next car. And also with PCP, you do have the flexibility of simply handing the car back at the end of the agreement and walking away with nothing more to pay. Now, Richard, you've just talked us through two of the most popular types of of car finance. We'll we'll talk about some of the alternatives a bit later on. But it is those popular types, so higher purchase and personal contract purchase agreements, that are the types of finance which would be impacted by mis-selling. So firstly, how do you know which kind of agreement you have and whether you might be eligible for compensation? The best way is to check um, your paperwork if you still have it to hand. All regulated companies are required to make it clear through the FCA, what type of finance it is. So you will be able to look at it and see mention of high purchase or or personal contract purchase um, somewhere in the agreement. Um, If you're looking for a a more general rule of thumb, if you have a balloon payment at the end, that means it will be a PCP agreement because you're not paying off the full value of the car. And it's also worth stating here that it is PCP and HP that are being investigated by the FCA. If you're looking at car leasing, that's not covered by the scope of this investigation. And also, if it's 0% finance, that won't be 
eligible for compensation either because, of course, there's no finance involved. And Richard, do we have any idea what the next steps are if you think you might be eligible for compensation, if you think you fall into to either of these categories? The next steps are still being decided by the FCA, and this is something that we would learn in September. But what's being advised is that you send a note to the lender, the finance house who lent the money, because it is the lender that is responsible, not the car dealer who sold you the car. And I've noticed in recent weeks, many of the major finance houses are having dedicated pages on their website where you can fill in information, your name and address and postcode and and finance reference number if you have it and register register there um, to make a complaint and do it in a one-stop shop. The finance house isn't required to immediately respond to this Um, This is dependent on what the FCA decides. And usually, if you make a complaint, they are required to get back to you within eight weeks. That has been rescinded for this investigation. So they're not required to get back to you in this time frame. So that means that you might not receive a response straight away. But many of the major finance houses are issuing responses saying that they've received a complaint from you and they'll investigate once the FCA decides further steps come September. And on top of all this, people listening will understandably be thinking, well, how much might I be owed if indeed compensation is forthcoming? Have, have we got any idea on the sums that, that might be expected to be paid back? At this stage, we don't have any clear idea, but we can make a guess. Based on the, the two complaints that were upheld by the Omnudsman, this involved a car that sold for around £7,000 and the other one sold for around 15000 And the FOS decided to compensate the customer on the difference between the very lowest APR rate that they could have had and the actual APR that they ended up paying. And this worked out to be around £1,100 on a seven or £8,000 car. So I would say around £1,000 is a fair estimate of what sort of compensation people might be able to expect here. So not small sums? Not small sums at all, no. It's, um, it's surprising. And when you consider that there are 1.9 million cars sold each year, and this is going back to potentially 2007, the figures involved could be quite significant. Well, this is a story that, of course, we will keep close attention to here on the podcast. And also, we've got a new story over on witch.co.uk, so we'll pop a link to that in the description for today's episode. And we'll be back shortly with more on the other options available for you if you don't have the cash to buy your next car outright. That's after this. What is happening to supermarket prices? Do own label brands taste good? What's the best supermarket? What's the worst? How do I spend less on my weekly shop? Are there ways I can shop smarter? Should I just be growing my own veg? How do I even grow veg? <sighs> Wine to pair with spag ball? When life gives you questions, get answers at witch.co.uk. So Richard, given everything that we've talked about so far on today's episode, many people listening to this might be wondering if they should maybe steer clear of that type of finance completely and maybe there's something else. I mean, what would what would you advise here? Well, there are other types of um, arrangements to get into a new car. An arrangement that's proven particularly popular nowadays is car leasing, also known as PCH or personal contract hire. Um, this is particularly relevant for electric cars because they are a lot more expensive. And by leasing a car rather than buying it outright means that you're financing a lot less of the value and it helps make it a lot more affordable. There are more and more websites offering comparisons for car leasing rates. And because PCP is effectively a halfway house between leasing and outright purchase, many people are thinking, I'll just rent the car instead of buy it outright and lease it. So leasing is becoming very popular. And an interesting development from that um, are car subscriptions. And a subscription is essentially a very flexible type of car lease where you have a fixed monthly payment and 
that's it. You don't have to, often you don't have to pay for insurance. You don't have to pay for servicing or tires. It's an all-inclusive one-off fee. And you could subscribe a car for anything from three months to two years. Um, car subscriptions are more expensive than car leasing, but it, because of the flexibility and that inclusivity, many people are looking at them with interest and the number of car leasing schemes are growing all the time in the UK. I mean, we talk about subscription services here on the podcast quite a lot, Richard, but I don't think I ever thought that we talk about car subscriptions. I mean, is this is this something that might be a good one if you know, say you're you're listening to this and you're a you're a real car buff. You like the idea of driving different cars. Is is that where subscriptions would come into their own? It certainly it certainly can do. Yes, um, often the the latest cars are there, and it means that you can get straight into them without having to wait. The downside is the extra expense. So if you if you don't want to change regularly, um, you might prefer to save a few hundred pounds a month by taking on a traditional card lease. But the, the flexibility and quick turnaround of subscription is quite exciting and, and lots of people are, are buying into that. And then obviously there is the, I was going to say the traditional or maybe I should be saying the, the old fashioned method of, of independently financing your, your next purchase. So not having to, to worry about all of these various finance options. So what are the potential routes that you could go down here if you do want to kind of independently finance your, your next car purchase and take a bit of control back yourself? That's right. You can um, take on personal loan, um, and there are very competitive rates out there at the moment. A combination of a personal loan and a good value second-hand car is a very compelling, affordable proposition, particularly if you keep an eye on the APR and get the lowest APR, because that has the biggest factor on the overall cost. When looking at car finance, I always advise people to try and go for the lowest APR and consider the whole finance period and look at the the overall amount that you'll be paying um quite often in finance agreements you will get that total amount figure and whereas you can be attracted by a low apr um sometimes that's that doesn't fully come out in the overall figures so you can be paying a lot more than you might first expect um, it's definitely worth shopping around it's definitely worth looking at the small print and it's certainly worth not being rushed because there's a lot to absorb here. There's a lot to compare and contrast. And you don't want somebody standing over you, forcing you to make a decision when you don't want to. Um, and, and also final point is I would always say to haggle. Um, you can save a lot of money on cars. Cars are expensive purchases and you can save a lot of money on the list price and, and also on the finance agreements by haggling and shopping around and making sure that you're not paying a single penny more than you should be. All, all really good advice there, Richard. So, you know, that all sort of stands up, doesn't it, regardless of whether you are independently financing your next purchase or, or whether you are going down the, the car finance option. And, and obviously, as we've already said on the, on the episode today, we will kind of keep across this story and bring you any developments here on the podcast. Richard, before you leave us, you know, we, we've spoken about HP and PCP agreements. These are the ones that are being investigated at the moment from from going back from 2021 back as he said potentially as far as to 2007 but if anyone is thinking about using any of these more traditional car finance options right now should they be concerned or or is the fact that this investigation is taking place means that they they actually shouldn't worry about getting involved with with HP or PCP right now. I think the investigation means that you can have a lot of confidence um, in taking on car finance now. Um, the FCA did outlaw um, this type of discretionary commission arrangement in 2021, um, and also the work that it's done over the past few years with with lenders and finance houses means that in terms of compliance and doing the right thing for consumers, the car finance industry is in a very good place at the moment. So I would say people can look into it with a high degree of confidence and certainly make their purchase um, knowing that any issues that this may uncover certainly should not affect anybody who's purchasing a car today. Richard, it has been brilliant to have you on the show. So much expertise, and I think that's been reassuring and, and really insightful for anyone listening to this who might be interested in getting involved in car finance, but also you've really shone a light on this uh, developing news story. So thank you very much for doing that, and thank you for joining us. You're most welcome. It's a pleasure.
and Richard as well, I should say. Keep listening to the podcast. <laughs> I'll be tuning in. <laughs> now, listeners, if, like Richard, you do enjoy listening to this podcast, then do stick around because after the credits, I'll give you a chance to hear the latest episode of our Get Answers podcast. Now, it's especially relevant as hosts Grace and Harry are joined by a brilliant guest to discuss what you really need from your next car. Plus, they also go behind the scenes of how we test cars here at Which. Well, a huge thank you to Richard for coming on the show today and to you for listening to this week's episode of the Witch Money Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please hit subscribe to make sure you catch our new episodes as soon as they drop. And for daily money news and advice, you can find us on social media. We're at Witch Money and we're online at witch.co.uk forward slash money. And we also have our free money newsletter and that's delivered to your inbox every Monday. To sign up, visit witch.co.uk forward slash money newsletter. This episode of the Witch Money Podcast was written, produced and presented by me, Rob Lilly-Jones, and edited by James Rowe. Hello and welcome. I'm Harry Kind. I'm Grace Farrell. And this is Get Answers for living your best consumer life. When life gives you questions, which Get Answers. On today's Get Answers, we're hitting the road, at least metaphorically, as today we tackle one of the biggest purchases you can make, that is your car. According to stats from the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, over 1.9 million new cars were sold in 2023, with even more used cars purchased over the last 12 months. Now, of course, the cars that we buy now are a far cry from those we'd have bought in the past, perhaps the ones that our parents were driving or the ones that we've inherited from them. And so many of the gadgets and gizmos that are out there really confusing and go unused by drivers just trying to get to grips with a new motor. Grace, when did you actually buy a car last? And do you actually use all the features that you were told about? I last bought a car in, in 2018 and it was when I was pregnant with my first child. So I realised I needed to probably upgrade from my ancient Nissan Micra to something a bit bigger, bigger boot, space for a car seat. It does have a lot of mod cons. I absolutely love it, but I uh, I use about 40% of the features. <laughs> I use the seat warmer. I open my windows. There are lots of things I don't use, to be honest. Yeah. Feeling quite embarrassed about it, to be honest now. <laughs> Where, uh, as I had my learner car, which was basically a go-kart, had absolutely nothing. It didn't even have windows that opened in the back. It did, however, have a nice mould growing underneath the main seat. I'm not sure if that was the basic spec <laughs> or you had to upgrade for that. So this week, we are going to be separating those useless, unused features from the ones that really matter when you're buying your next vehicle. Later, we'll be pulling back the curtain on how we test cars here at Witch, and we'll reveal which manufacturing claims you just need to take with a pinch of salt. And this is excellent timing because which members should have received their car guide in the last week or so. But actually, if you've just joined as a member and you missed it, or if you join us in the next few months, you'll be sent a copy. Just make sure you join before June. But we'll have more on this offer in the show notes. First, though, let's welcome our guest for today's show. It's the podcaster, YouTuber and all-round car fanatic, Sam Moores. Welcome, Sam. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you give us a bit of a background of what you do and, and how you've gotten into cars? So I studied engineering at university, was sort of into cars before that a little bit, but not not tons, just kind of like I could say that was a Lamborghini. I couldn't tell you the model. So during this time, I'd started taking photos, always had an interest in photography. And then a friend of mine started filming cars and going to car events. And he was like, why didn't you come along, take some photos? I started taking some photos, sort of carried on and got into that. So I'm a photographer. I have since started making some videos every now and then. And then along the way, probably four years ago, it's always a lot longer than you think it is. So it's probably six. I decided to start a podcast. I realized that I had a reasonable number of contacts in the sort of automotive space, but mainly was just spending a lot of time talking to my friends who were sort of in the industry as such about cars. So I figured... It was one of my favorite mediums for listening to stuff. So I would start interviewing my mates. After about five episodes, realized I had no more mates and had to start getting in touch with random people. And then now we're 200 episodes in all long form interviews about people in the sort of car space doing interesting things. Well, I mean, you probably drive more cars in a month than the average person does in a whole lifetime. So, you know, when you're getting into new cars, you're you're seeing different ones all the time, adjusting the seats, making sure the air set for you. What 
are your pet peeves when you're kind of experiencing a new car? What does annoy you about the cars that you do test sometimes? I think it depends on sort of new cars versus older cars. Some stuff that's been quite annoying recently, a good example, you get in a car you've not driven before and the things you want to do is adjust the seat and sort of get set up and whatever. And most cars now, you can plug your phone in and if you're on Apple, it'll say turn on CarPlay and it's kind of done most of the stuff you want to do, set the temperature. But I was in a new Range Rover. There's no sort of buttons really there. I think there was something that looks like a seat, but you can't move much. There's like two buttons or something. So you press a button that then on the central screen brings up a sub menu with a seat on it, which has like 18 slider options. You're moving at this point in time. <laughs> Probably shouldn't be. But normally you'd just reach down the side of your seat, move it a little bit, and you don't need to look at it. You start adjusting your seat of one of the 14 million options because it's got all the kit. And then after about two seconds, that sub menu just retracts, just disappears. <laughs> And you have to start the whole process again. You have to press the button and then it pops out again and then you start. So sub-menus on screens, that is unbelievably annoying. So much more complicated than presumably some of the classic cars you test, which is just one large knob that you twist or, or a, a, a lever. Yeah, and I, I like having the technology and the, the different changes and stuff, but things like that, I think manufacturers have gone past the point of helpful and we now need to come back a little bit and have maybe some buttons on the side of seats. I'm sure it's there's benefits to making it easier, like from a manufacturing and cheap sort of point of view, of having it all through one display. But there are certain things you want to be able to do without looking at them. I don't know, turn on the music or whatever. It's, it's normally on the steering wheel, but a dial rather than some sort of tap haptic feedback buttons that you're you're driving along a road and you're jiggling it around and your hand's not always in the same place. I don't know. There's plenty of stuff like that. Do you have any, I suppose, advice on that, on, on what are your go-to like tests that you'll do on those month-long experiences that mean that you can kind of make a realisation in five, ten minutes? I think it's really tricky. I, I don't have like a set process. I just kind of get in and use the car. Often I'll get a car for like two hours. So I'm not really like deep diving into stuff. Sometimes I have a car for a week. Sometimes it's a car I've owned or whatever. So you have it for longer. So I'm not doing like a thorough test. But if I'm buying a car and I'm quite a techie person, I like researching stuff and whatever, I will watch all the reviews on that car. Like whether they're people talking about how good it is to drive or whether it's something I know you guys talk about a little bit about like all of the testing of the amounts of space and yada, 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 yada. I will look at all of that stuff. And most of the things that might be annoying would get flagged by those sorts of things. Which presumably that works when your car actually is the spec that it's supposed to be. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So I found a car, asked the dealer if the you know, any random issues and blah, 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 blah. And then about four or five months into owning the car, it's winter. And I'm like, okay. Pop the heated seats on. And it doesn't have heated seats. No. And as a consumer, how on earth are you meant to know that that's the case? Yeah. I think dealers probably should tell you what has happened, I believe, is during pandemic, that sort of time, there was all these chip shortages and manufacturers started putting out cars with less options and things. And some options weren't necessarily available if it was an option and all this sort of weird stuff. But now I've got a car that doesn't have heated seats, which I just thought it did. So I guess if you're buying a car of that sort of age, so 2020, 2021, 2022 maybe, you should probably ask the dealer, is there anything I should know about this that's not obvious? Or like, does it have all of the standard features? Like, uh, yeah, well... Maybe it doesn't. So it was quite surprising, that one. Yeah, it's like we've got a whole generation of pandemic cars where people have got cold bottoms. 100%. Or like slightly smaller screens and, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And that stuff that's very difficult, you've got to ask, I suppose, all the questions when you're buying a car. I mean, some things, I suppose, are more obvious, which is that the car is like almost the size of a house. Like you test classic cars, you look at modern cars. Obviously, they're getting bigger We've actually done some research that finds that more and more cars now are just unparkable in like the average UK parking spaces. Mm. Is that something that you've kind of come across that there are some you know, fat bottom cars out there? 
cars are definitely bigger. It's difficult to say whether it's sort of manufacturer marketing led or consumer led. I think each one tries to argue that it's the other one, that everyone wants an SUV. I think from a manufacturing point, they can sell them for more and they don't cost much more to make. So they make more profit and they are taller. But generally, people seem to want to be in bigger cars. I mean, I've been put off getting a bigger car. I've got a, a Kia Nero, so it's not a small car. But we've been looking at going a little bit bigger. And it is the parking that puts me off. But I, I love the, I'm going to, I probably don't know the right name of this feature, but the rear view camera that lets yeah. you see, you know, when yeah, you're yeah, reversing. Yeah. I mean, it feels like cars are getting bigger, but that technology is getting more advanced. So that parking is, it's easier in that respect, even though the cars are bigger. But I don't think I want to go much bigger than where I'm at now. Yeah, I think it's one of those things you get used to whatever you're driving. So if you've never driven a huge car, once you do drive a huge car, you get used to it. But one feature that is on some modern cars that I personally don't like is electronic side mirrors. So little screens instead of side mirrors. Um, So they've got cameras instead. You're looking at those kind of the actual really, really useful developments that there have been. Some of that's from regulation. Some of that's just through innovation. There'll be listeners, they've not bought a new car in maybe 20 years. A whole lot's moved on. What should they definitely be thinking? This should be potentially top of my list of things to include. That is tricky. Some of these are more expensive options. So I wouldn't say you've got to have it. Um, that just can be nice to have sometimes. Um, One of my favourite ones is adaptive cruise control. That is on a lot of new cars now. And what does that do? So cruise control, you just turn it on and it holds your accelerator at the speed that you're doing. So you set it at 70 and you will just keep doing 70. The problem with that in, let's say, the UK is the car in front slows down and if you're not paying too much attention, you would smash straight into them. Adaptive cruise control has some cameras and sensors, depending on the car, depends on the set of sensors and stuff they have, but if the car in front slows down, your car slows down. What I've found about using that system is you have a few different options for the distance to the car in front, and you probably set it at a sensible distance, and then you kind of leave it. You never really change that one. And what you'll find is you're driving down the motorway and you're like, oh, I'm leaving a nice amount of space to the car in front. Whereas if you don't have that system, I would be surprised if anyone leaves that amount of space, which would be considered a sensible amount of space. But you see most people driving down the motorway on each other's bumpers at like 80 miles an hour, which if someone tries to stop is going to be a problem. So that, that's one of my favorite ones. CarPlay. So I'm, I've got an Apple phone. And the ability to just plug my phone in and I could have preset my Google. Music comes up. Often cars have it wireless now. That is a a great feature. Easily retrofittable to an older car these days. Oh, how how do you retrofit that to an older car? You'd have to look up the specific car and model, etc. But you can basically buy a unit that replaces the standard sort of screen in your car with a very similar looking one, except it has CarPlay etc bluetooth and and whatnot and you can do that in a lot of cars it's a real meaningful upgrade and i'd say that the final feature is an ev or hybrid only feature it's one of my favorite things about evs is the ability to preheat your car before you get in it now there might be some americans listening who go yeah my whatever truck has been able to do this for ages and in america you can buy cars where you just go beep beep on your remote the engine starts across the street and the aircon and whatnot starts running. But with an EV, you can set it, you can do it from your phone, all this sorts of stuff. So in a winter morning, a classic photo could be of an ICE car, so a car with an engine in it, and an EV next to each other in the morning, maybe your neighbor and you, and the EV is like defrosted, warm, <laughs> ready to get in when you get it in the morning, whereas the other guy is like scraping the, the ice off the windscreen. And that is, unless you have a hybrid powertrain, and I think it probably has to be a plug-in hybrid, but a hybrid powertrain or an EV, you can't do that. But it's an amazing feature. Just quickly, Sam, what are your thoughts on EVs? Do you own one? Do you want to own one soon? Do you think we're, we're ready for them? I think there's, there's lots of topics on EVs. From a pure ownership experience, for me at the moment, we use one for short journeys around town and stuff like that. And yeah, I have this car that has a sort of theoretical long range of like 150 miles, unless I drove over at 30 miles an hour down the motorway, you might get in trouble. And that works great for us. And we often do longer trips. And as long as it's within that range, in that car, I don't worry about it at all. 
I wouldn't want to be charging that particular car out in the world all the time, just from my life, I can't be bothered, but it's not a hassle charging electric cars. I would look at the range and don't take what the manufacturer says, the W, well, it's not even what the manufacturer says, the manufacturer is not lying to you, it's a test that an outside body has put the car through and it's just not realistic for day-to-day -day driving. So the US have a different test, but that is actually much more representative of what you would actually get. So if I looked up my car, it would probably say 150 miles rather than 250 on that one. And, and actually that's what we do here at Witch is that we do a real life test on EV range so that you know how far you're going to be able to go in a real life conditions. But we're going to find out more about our testing regime after the break. Welcome back to Get Answers, where today we're chatting cars. We've been talking about some of the modern features that you might not know, which can be a help or a hindrance, but here at which we like to test the real everyday essentials, how much boot space, how far can your car drive, and Grace has been talking to one of our testing experts to find out more. Yes, so for today's episode, I've been chatting to Dino Barati. He's one of our cars experts here at Witch, and he knows pretty much all there is to know about the weird and wonderful tests we put cars through. Here's what happened when we spoke earlier. So Dino, it's that time of the year where Witch publishes the car guide. Big deal for us, isn't it? What actually is it and, and how do we put it together? Because you're quite a key part of the team. Yeah, so the car guide has two roles, basically. So we use it to summarise the best and in some cases the worst models that have been released or that we've had scores for over the last 12 months. So in that respect, it acts as a buyer's guide showing readers what cars are available, both new and used, that we either recommend, don't recommend, or think are worth talking about. And then the other aspect of the guide is as a showcase for the results of our reliability survey, which takes place every year, and it's the largest reliability survey of cars, we think, in the UK. So apart from reliability, what kind of things are you looking at then when, when you're kind of assessing each model that you include? So we take a number of different factors into consideration that can vary from things like safety. Because we founded EuroNCAP, we helped to found the organisation back in 1996. Just for anyone who's listening who, who isn't familiar, EuroNCAP, can you explain what that is? EuroNCAP is a European organisation that was founded in 1996 and it basically it crash tests new cars. It can be everything up to 70, 80 a year depending on what the manufacturers want to submit for testing. And basically every car that gets tested has a star rating. So five stars is very good, excellent. Most cars nowadays do score five stars. That then goes down to four, three, two, one, and in very rare cases, zero stars. What we do is basically any car that scores three stars or less in the Euro NCAP tests is an automatic don't buy from us, whether it's a new car or a used car. Is it right that our labs carry out over 200 tests on each car? Yeah, our lab does carry out a lot of tests on each car. I mean, they can have each vehicle for two weeks. That's how long it can take them to carry out tests on each car, basically. Can you give us an example of, of some of the tests that they do? So our lab has a collection of foam bricks that it uses to test usable boot space. It does this by placing the bricks in the boot of the car and then measuring how many there are. Because the bricks are, used, are usually different sizes, they can then look at those bricks and work out how much usable space there is. The amount of usable space there is very rarely tallies with what the manufacturer claims the car has for actual boot space. So do you find that a lot then, where a car manufacturer will make a claim, but then when we actually go to test it, we, we find that that's not actually the case? Yeah, I mean, so anything from MPG, EV range, boot space it's very unusual that our tests will show that a manufacturer claim is accurate although in some cases our tests actually show that say ev range can actually be better than a manufacturer claims which is very unusual but is very interesting are there any other unusual tests that help us get our results yeah so our lab also has a test track facility that they use for various performance benchmarking tests but they also use it to perform a hazard avoidance test. So they will set up basically a situation where you have to swerve out of a lane at very short notice and then swerve back into the lane if you've got to avoid, say, a stalled car or 
another type of hazard and they'll drive the car at about 56 miles an hour into that scenario and then they'll try to steer the car out of the lane into the next lane as quickly as possible to avoid the hazard. Right. And what about things like comfort? How do you test that? So we have a dummy that we use to measure the amount of height and legroom that's available for passengers in the front and the back of the car. Our engineers will put this dummy into the car, set it up so it's comfortable for passengers in the front and the back, and then they'll measure how much space there is available for people to sit in the car. Mm, Okay, that is interesting. And I can actually confirm that I am not that dummy that they talked about that they put in the car. <laughs> Do you know, that that dummy, when, when, when I was speaking to him about it, I was envisioning this, you know, like when you see car crashes, when they've like set up a car crash and there's like an awful dummy being thrown around. I thought it was going to be like that kind of dummy, but it isn't. It's like just a series of, I don't know, levers and things to be different sizes of person, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, all of that, and all of the results from our testing are in our brand new car guide, which is out now. It's got reviews of hundreds of cars and includes our favourite cars for 2024, which covers everything from the best family car, the best AV, hybrids and more. To get the full details on that, you need to be a which member, but we asked nicely and the car team said we can give away a couple of interesting nuggets. Ooh. For example, if reliability is your thing, then Japanese manufacturers continue to score highly, while the Renault Zoe, one of the most popular electric vehicles, continues to perform poorly in our rankings because it received a zero-star crash test score from the European car testing people. Really quite shocking. If you want the full details on that, on how to sign up, I'll put a link in the description for today's episode. So, Sam, you've listened to that. What did you make of what you've heard? It's kind of, I suppose, a less sexy way of of testing cars, maybe, than you would with a a Lamborghini. I think that sort of testing, which you guys do and there's people that do, is, is really important. I think being able to look up and compare between cars and all done scientifically makes a huge difference and like i get friends asking me sometimes less than i'd hope often they just tell me what they've bought and i've gone why have you done that but doing all these things they might go okay i've bought for example grace you're saying oh we're looking for a slightly bigger car now are you looking for a bigger car because you want a bigger car or do you want more space there might be a manufacturer that makes a car that's the same size that might have not even necessarily more interior space it just might be much more usable one that we've come across with our cars is if you've got a big kind of holiday luggage bag. Some cars, you can put that bag in end on, sort of pointing away from you, straight in the boot, and therefore you might be able to get, I don't know, four side by side. Whereas some, it's not quite deep enough, or the seat reclines back a little bit, and some cars let you move the backrest on the seat, which could change this problem. And it means that you can just about fit it in. Whereas if you have to put them sideways, the Tetris doesn't work and you might only get three in rather than four. Really kind of niche nerdy type stuff. No, we love it. Trying to look at manufacturers' literage on their websites, this is when it starts getting nerdy, there is no set standard for measuring boot space. So when manufacturers say the literage of their boot... In theory, they're meant to do up to, um, or a lot of manufacturers do up to where that cover is, whatever it's called, the parcel shelf, so that you can put the luggage in the car and see over the top and use the car as per normal. When you're looking, I'm tempted to do this because I've had a small kid in the last couple of years and our cars have slightly got bigger and bigger and bigger as time has gone on, is like, get your car at home, put in the a bunch of big bags and go, this fits in our car at home. This is a typical weekend. And then just take those bags with you to the dealership and be like, can I put them in that car? That's a good idea. See if it fits. Like If it fits and you go, oh, I've got loads more space or actually it's kind of the same, then you've got a much better idea of, let's say, the load capacity of the car. Speaking of car dealerships, you must have come across a fair few salespeople in your time, Sam. Do you have any tips here on how to kind of wade through some of their sales patter and get a good deal? I would always say do all your research. And if you're after something super rare, then it sort of narrows it down 
often anyway. There's only a few places you can go to. So then picking someone you trust is helpful. If it's a secondhand car, you can get inspections. If you're buying from a main OEM dealer, they generally you get a warranty. So that's quite nice. That sort of alleviates some of that. You can go and get an outside, like a non-manufacturer warranty, which I did a podcast with someone about this topic recently. And they are the same product. I think a lot of people go, oh, okay, I've gone to Porsche and they give me a two-year warranty. Okay, I can go to this other company and they'll give me a two-year warranty. And lots of people assume that the one from Porsche or whoever, Audi, BMW, la, 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 is kind of worth more than this second other company. The reality is they're all off-the-shelf products sold by the same people, rebranded. It's like a white-label product. So the warranty has probably come from a company like this other one you're looking at, but... Porsche or whoever have put their name on it and they're selling it. It's just part of it. So you can get a warranty on pretty much any car. It will just will cost. They've got to think you're going to walk away. If they don't think you're going to walk away, then what are you going to get? You can look on websites like AutoTrader. You can see how long a car has been for sale for. That's quite interesting. If, if the dealer's had it for a long time, maybe if it's getting towards the end of the month or if the new plates are about to come out, if it's a sort of new cut type car, they might be wanting to try and get rid of or hit targets on the 30th of January, for example. You're in a much better position. If they've been sitting on a car for four months and you know they kind of need to shift it, then you've got a lot of power there. Whereas if the car has only been in the dealership for an hour and they've had five people call about it, then... You might be the person who gets it over the their kind of like quarterly quota and, and they win the bottle of champagne in the, in the dealership. And what about things like looking in other parts of the country for a car? Because car, cars don't always cost the same price in all parts of the country, right? No, they don't. So, for example, if you uh, try to go sort of super extreme, if you are selling a convertible and you are in... I don't know, Alaska in the winter, there's a lot less people that want to buy that car. If you go to the south of France in the summer, you'd say, oh, maybe there's a lot more people that want a convertible down here. So there are shifts and it's always worth, it's very easy to do now. There's places where demand is high, places where demand is low. Some cars are more popular in certain locations. Maybe if you lived in the desert, there's more off-roaders and Toyotas and stuff like that, trucks and things. If you live in central London, there might be probably loads of massive cars because everyone needs off-road cars in London. But there is there is fluctuations, but the internet has made it very easy to see what's for sale. And I think that's, that's worked both ways. I don't think you're going to get necessarily crazy deals, but you can find stuff easily. And if you're willing to travel, the dealer is also aware that if you've traveled there, they know you don't want to go back without a car. yeah you are a captive audience Uh, i've got one final point i I didn't mention or just a couple of little ones on on buying cars so condition of the car look at the car if you can take someone else along with you if you've got a friend that's sort of you know that person that spots a spot of dust from a mile away or like a picture that's not hanging straight if you've not got a real like you know car enthusiastic person take take that person and just have a look around the car See if the doors all open and close properly, if the panel gaps, so the sort of gaps in between all of the bodywork, if they all look kind of similar. Does anything look different? And then service history. So has it got any? Have people kept the documents? The manufacturer, when they make them, they go, okay, the oil needs to be changed after 5,000 miles, 20,000 miles, whatever. If it's not, what you're doing is you're increasing the wear on the car. These cars are built, things need to be changed, brakes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you've got receipts for all of that stuff, then one, it says, what's the person like who's had this car before? If they've got a folder with the name of the car on it and like a picture on the front and they've got every single document ever and photos of, I don't know, holidays or whatever in this set of documents, they care about that car. If there's nothing and there's one key, and you're like, where's the other key? And they're like, I don't know. You know, all that sort of stuff. It tells you a little bit about the car's life other than the pure numbers. Finally, if you can settle a debate which has been going on in, the, in our social media groups, which is, are car headlights getting brighter? And if they are, as a driver, do you think that's a good thing? Or are you, do you prefer the nice dim orange glow of a, of a classic car? 
It's 100% a good thing. Anyone drive a classic car in the winter, in the dark, in the rain, you want to see the objects before you hit them. Like, I did a great experience taking an old 911 to Sweden in the winter, and we mounted some extra lights on it. And even then, they were absolutely awful. Unbelievable. But seeing is a good thing. Seeing, but then also being blinded. I don't know. Well, it's a fine line. <laughs> the technology is getting the sort of the top end, which will filter down to everything. We have these things called matrix lights now. So they're lasers and whatnot. But as the car is coming towards you, the lights literally part around the car. It's, re it's really trick. It's on like high end, I don't know, German stuff and whatnot. But literally your light is a normal beam. And then as the car comes towards you, a dark block covers the car so they don't get dazzled and you can see to the left, to the right of them, above, etc. It's really trick. Sam, thank you so much for joining today. Just a huge trove of knowledge. Obviously, there's a whole lot more where that came from. Where can people find you on your socials and, and listen to your podcast as well? Yeah, um, my name's Sam Moores. I have a podcast called Car Chat. It's on all podcast platforms um, you can also find me on YouTube Instagram etc blah 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 all of that <laughs> <laughs> thank you Sam thank you so much really been fantastic and a big thank you for joining us thanks very much we hope you enjoyed today's episode if you'd like to get in touch with us and have your message read out on our next episode then we're on email at podcast at witch.co.uk and at witchuk on socials and that's the same place to send your feedback on how you're enjoying our episodes here on Get Answers. As we mentioned earlier, it would be great if you would help us out and leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. So, Grace, what are we up to next time? Well, it's an important one, so make sure you don't miss it. We are pressing the fast forward button and discussing the future of scams, helping you stay one step ahead of the fraudsters. And we'll be joined by one of the brilliant team behind BBC's Scam Interceptors, which is a fantastic programme, so don't miss it. And remember, if you want more great stuff to listen to before then, check out the Witch Money Pod for your personal finances. And we've got the best stories from Witch Magazine narrated for you over on Witch Shorts. Today's Get Answers was presented by me, Harry Kind, alongside Grace Farrell, produced and recorded by Rob Lilly-Jones, and edited by Eric Breer. And thanks again to our wonderful guests, witch expert Dino Barati and the brilliant Sam Moores. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.